we have with us uh, for the second week in a row, he's been with us throughout our transition a good bit, um, but uh, for the second week in a row, uh, James Grant is with us. And James, uh, you know, he, he, he may know a lot about the Bible, but I think you know, we, we're really getting to benefit from the fact that he really knows uh, one particular uh, book of the Bible well, the book of Thessalonians. And so uh, we're going to get to work through that book with him, um, ultimately to point us to uh, Jesus, the, the one who this letter that Paul wrote is um, all about. And so, James, thank you for being with us and look forward uh, to hearing God's word uh, delivered from you. It's a delight to be back. We'll be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Last week we looked at chapter 1. And this week we'll be in chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 16. The Apostle Paul writes, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we have boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask at this time that you would open our hearts and our minds to the truth of the gospel, the truth of the word, as we seek to understand Paul's message to us in Thessalonians. We would ask that your spirit comes to grant us ears to hear 
and to transform our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. During my ministry in Rossville, I had a close friend whose mother joined our church. She was in her 70s, somewhere thereabout, and very kind and gracious as she was there with us. But as she went through the process of joining the church, she told me that every church she had attended had faced struggles. Every church she had attended had fallen apart to some degree. Something always tended to go wrong. I said something like, well, you know, life is difficult and church is hard, and, but, you know, we'll work through whatever happens. And she was clear that I needed to be watchful because of this problem she perceived. Several years later, we in fact did hit a tough patch. We faced as a session, the elders and the leaders, several failed marriages. One of them involved my close friend who was her son. And during that time, she reminded me how she told me when she joined the church that the churches she went to all faced problems like this. And they all faced these kinds of struggles. That perspective was her story. As I got to know her, she lived out of that kind of reality in the way she viewed the world. And I could tell that kind of story in several ways from numerous conversations in the ministry. I could tell that story from my own personal experiences whenever my mindset shifts, whenever something takes place in life, because every one of us lives out of some kind of story. It may be an unconscious story, that you adopted at a very young age as a child because of some experiences that you faced. It may be a story you're aware of, and you may be somewhat pessimistic and negative in your outlook at life. Whatever is the case, we all live out of that story. And her story was that trouble followed her everywhere she went. She was just bracing for it, no matter what was the case. Problems continue to hit. Or... Perhaps you have a perspective on life, a story that's become unconscious to you that whenever you face a struggle, you interpret the rest of your life in light of that struggle, in light of that problem. And you start to question why God continues to punish you in that way. I'm convinced that one of the fundamental aspects of the Christian life is coming to terms with what story you're telling yourself and having your story line up with the gospel story and allowing the gospel and the life of Christ to shape your story. That's what I want us to look at this morning. I want us to do that by examining a phrase that Paul uses over and over in the epistles, at least over a hundred times, in Christ. It seems to me that the expression in Christ is one of the dominant themes of Paul's theological structure. In other words, when Paul deals with a church, whether we are talking about Romans, the church in Rome, Corinth, Thessalonica, wherever, he's always dealing with them from a perspective of a story he has in his mind, a theological grid by which he helps them understand the world. Let me point you in the bulletin to page four. 
This is one of my favorite quotes by Sinclair Ferguson, and it actually doesn't come from a book. It comes from the 2008, at the Desiring God conference in 2008, the conference held up at John, or at John Piper's, by John Piper's church in ministry. Sinclair Ferguson was speaking that year, um, and he was participating in a panel with several other speakers during the discussion time. And Justin Taylor, who was leading the question and answer, asked him this question, can you say something about the importance of the doctrine of union with Christ? And Ferguson gave a long answer, but a portion of it I took and put in the bulletin. He says, you begin to understand that from the moment you become a Christian, you are someone who has died to sin and been raised to a newness of life. You are somebody over whose life the dominion of the power of sin has been broken. You begin to learn to interpret your life in terms of what God says about you because you're united to Christ instead of interpreting the gospel in terms of where you are in your struggle. Now, that last sentence, there are several things that that quote that are so important. Um, I might just say the point that he makes that you begin, as a Christian, you begin to understand your life in light of what Christ did. You begin to slowly understand your life in light of you are someone who has died to sin and been raised to a newness of life. There's something that has shifted for you if you trust in Christ. There's something that has changed. And Paul does this over and over in his epistles. And Ferguson then goes on at the very end, he says, you begin to learn to interpret. This is a lifelong process. You begin to learn to interpret your life because you're all interpreting your life. You're going to leave today. You're going to go eat. You're going to do something else this afternoon. You're going to face your life this week, and you're going to interpret everything that happens to you in some manner. You're going to try to figure it out. You're going to try to understand why did this happen? What's God teaching me? You're going to ask those questions. And Ferguson says, you have to learn to interpret your life in terms of what God says about you because you're united to Christ instead of interpreting the gospel story in terms of your struggle. My friend who joined the church was interpreting the gospel and the ministry of the church in light of her struggle and the struggles that the church has faced. It is so fundamental that over and over again in Paul's epistles, he talks about suffering and he tries to tie suffering back to the cross so that when you suffer, you view your suffering as following Christ. Look in, in, Second Thessalonians, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the very end of the passage that I read, just to highlight this, where he talks about suffering. They accepted the word of God in verse 13. They became, verse 14, imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus because they suffered. When was the last time you read a Christian book on imitating someone and you're supposed to imitate them in their suffering? But that's what Jesus said. Pick up your cross and follow me. This world is full of troubles. 
So when suffering happens, we have a choice to make. Do we interpret the suffering that's coming in light of the gospel and say, you know, God is doing something at this time in my life for growth? Or do we interpret the gospel in light of our suffering and then go, God must be upset? In the back of our minds, there's some story there because we got in trouble when we were young, we had something that happened, and we think God's out to get us. That's what's at stake. And I might add, it's so important, like the structure of our liturgy. It's always dangerous when a preacher deviates from the course of the sermon. But the structure of the liturgy is a story. It's flowing from a call to praise God, to understand his, our sin and confess our sin, to, to, to receive the assurance that we've been forgiven. So the reason we sing, his mercy is more, it's because it is. It's bigger and greater than your struggle. That's what the hymns are doing as we repeat the story of the gospel week after week in worship. That's the very essence of what worship is, is to reframe this story for you. That's why when we sung, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, your hearts were exploding with the music and the song because it was reframing your mind on the love of Christ. And then you leave here and you forget. And the song becomes dim through the course of the week. That's what Ferguson is talking about is reframing your life in light of Christ's life. The doctrine of union with Christ is fundamental in all of Paul's writings. So you see at the very beginning of every letter, when he, when he, when he addresses the church, he talks about how they are the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Every letter is framed that way. Because he's viewing every conversation with these people as a community who are shaped by that connection. One of our uh, significant Presbyterian authors from the last century, John Murray, wrote a book about the accomplishment of redemption. And in it, he said that this doctrine of union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. That expression in Christ frames everything that we talk about when it comes to your salvation. Listen to a few of these verses. I'm just going to give you about four or five from Paul's writings that highlight this truth. Romans 6, 11, and 12. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. In the book of Romans, that's, as he goes through Romans, he gets to chapter 6, verse 11, and that's the first command. It's not, now go do this, consider that you're dead. Or 2 Corinthians 5, 17, perhaps a favorite verse of many of you. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's pushing you to see yourself in a different light. Not part of the old creation, but part of the new creation in Christ. Or a couple of my favorite passages, Galatians 2.20, 
Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. I have been crucified with Christ. Or Ephesians 1. If you read through Ephesians 1 this afternoon, just count the number of times the phrase in Christ, in Jesus, in the Lord occurs. Multiple times. In him we have redemption. In him we have obtained inheritance. In him we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. All these passages point towards this reality. And what I want us to do this morning is look at chapter 2. And I want us to pick out some of the uh, commands and some of the expressions Paul uses. And I want us to view his story in light of this. Because when he comes to write to this church, he's writing out of this reality. That he is united to Christ. And because he's united to Christ, because of the gospel, he now lives differently and he ministers differently. So, chapter 2. Several things that Paul says. I've heard numerous sermons from chapter 2 about ministry uh, in seminary to pastors and, and very valuable things. You could look here if you're talking about just ministry before we get to the specifics of the Christian life. Verse 1, Paul says, You yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. Now, we know the story from this church. Paul had to be ushered out in the middle of the night. There was, there was a problem. Jason and others from the church, Acts 17 told us, were drug out and brought before the leaders of the city. There's a great temptation if you're the minister who brought the gospel there and you have to sneak out in the middle of the night that you look at this and go, this was pointless. What was I doing there? And how many times is the case, not just in ministry, but in the Christian life, where you look at something (laughs) when you're raising your children when you're working on your marriage, when you're trying to figure out what to do next, and you're like, what are we doing? Are we on the same page here? Because this life is really difficult. And so there's a great temptation to say, this was in vain. One of the most common conversations I've had with people who left the church, not just leaving the church to go join another church, but just stopped, was that it was pointless. Why did I do all that? Because a child goes through a crisis or a spouse does something to harm the other. That's interpreting the struggle first. And then reading the gospel in light of the struggle. What Paul does here is Paul goes through this and he describes the ministry, he describes the Christian life in such a way that He's highlighting for these Christians, and he's highlighting for us, how we should do this ourselves. So let's consider this passage in light of Paul's, what we would call, union with Christ, and how that shapes what he writes and how he ministers. When Paul does this, he does it in a specific way. When Paul tells his story in chapter 2, he does it so that they can see the importance of the life of Jesus in his life. 
So, Paul's, uh, this first one about not being in vain. Why does Paul, I, I talked about how Paul thought his ministry could have been in vain because of the suffering, right? He could have very easily said that what he had done had failed. But he interprets his suffering as part of the ministry. He interprets his suffering as picking up his cross and following Jesus. So he's not looking at his struggle just as the main point. The struggle and the suffering he's interpreting in light of the gospel. His suffering, the struggle was not judgments from God, but they are part of his identity in Christ. Now look at verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel in the midst of much conflict. So not only was Paul's ministry not in vain, but he was bold to speak the gospel. He was bold to proclaim the gospel. He had courage. Now, where did this courage come from? He actually says it there in verse 2. We have boldness in our God. The boldness, the courage that he draws comes directly from the gospel. Throughout the gospels, when Jesus is ministering, there are religious leaders in conflict with him over and over again. They're trying to uh, make him be quiet. They're trying to intimidate him. And Jesus doesn't stop. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say, this is my course to bear this cross. And so Paul's little phrase, being bold in our God, is the same dynamic. Paul is bold in his preaching to continue to preach the gospel, even in the midst of much conflict, the last part of verse 2 says, because he interpreted the conflict as a necessary component of the ministry. And for some reason, if we keep faith and don't get bitter in the midst of our suffering, the depth of our maturity becomes more obvious. Our growth deepens. So Paul was bold to speak, not because he had super confidence in himself, but because he was bold in the Lord. And then the third aspect here that I want to point you to is in verse 4. He says, Just as we have been approved by God... To be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So not only did Paul, Paul's ministry, Paul didn't view his ministry as being in vain. And then he was bold to speak the gospel. The third aspect of this was that he was actually approved by God. This is another way in which Paul lived out this reality. This is not just a rhetorical phrase for Paul. Paul believed, because of justification by faith alone, that the reality of his life was different. In Colossians 3, he says his life is hidden with Christ in God. He was approved by God. And he was approved by God on the basis of Jesus, not on the basis of how well his ministry went or on the basis of how many people liked him or on the basis of how well the church plant went. His approval came from a different place. Now, how many times in your life, 
Is there a component of yourself that looks for approval from everything else around you? We are a culture in America of achievers, of goal setting, of success orientation. And we accomplish our goals and we feel better about ourselves, right? You set some New Year's goals? I don't know. I didn't. I'm tired of missing out, missing those goals. But you set these goals and if you accomplish them very quickly, there's all of a sudden this sense of like, well, I've been exercising every day this week. This has really gone well. I think I've lost some weight. And if you don't, then your whole demeanor might change. Paul found his approval not from anything in this world, but from another world, from the reality of the gospel. And this is very important if we can see the way this works out. Since Paul was approved by God, since Paul was united to Christ, it changed the way he lived. He did not come to Thessalonica to fill some need of approval from men. He did not come to plant that church to find some kind of approval. Because if that were the case, it failed at first. Right? He's ushered out in the middle of the night. I can't imagine a more depressing ministerial situation than being the pastor that plants a new church and they sneak me out at night so that I don't get thrown in jail. Yet, he did not interpret it that way. And because he was approved by God, it completely changed his approach to ministry. Ministry. Look in verse 5. He says, we never came with words of flattery, nor with a pretext for, pretext for greed. He didn't come with flattering words to try to sway them over. He didn't come just to make money like the traveling philosophers of the day with a pretext for greed. In other words, he wasn't using his ministry to hide some kind of deep need he had because he was approved by God. He wasn't using his ministry to hide his greed or his coveting. He was connected to Christ. And then he goes on to say he wasn't seeking glory from men. See uh, verse 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. That's not what he did because he was approved by God. This, I think, is the essence of spiritual maturity is dealing with whatever it is inside ourselves that look for all those things. And then slowly being able to minister and love other people out of that reality that your confidence comes from the gospel, that your confidence comes from your approval in God. There are several points here, aside from the first three big ones that I want to just highlight that are actually behaviors or actions that Paul did that are immensely helpful to us as we reflect on how we love and serve each other. First of all, Paul was gentle. You see that in verse 7. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. I'm fascinated by the metaphor, the illustration here of he calls himself a nursing mother as he's taking care of this church. What more 
expressive gentleness could he describe? Because Paul was confident in the gospel, because he was confident in Christ, and he found his approval somewhere else, he was patient and gentle. He took care of them like children. Again, this goes back to Jesus. How many times in the Gospels did the apostles misunderstand something and Jesus patiently, gently loved them back? Second, Paul was affectionate and giving. He says, verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the Gospel, but also ourselves. This is what the Gospel does to you. You not only share it by word, but you share it in your very life. You become a living expression of Jesus to other people. That's the way the gospel takes shape in your life, both word and deed. And Paul says it himself that he shared himself with them. He practically gave himself. He was willing to stay and they were ushering him out because he was willing to go to jail again for them. And we'll see next week, he sends Timothy back and he makes a great sacrifice in order to try to continue to minister to them. Third, he labored and toiled among them. He says, verse nine, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we work night and day so that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel. This kind of labor and toil when you're serving other people can very dangerously turn into an entitlement program. You've done all this for somebody. And what have they done for you? But because Paul got his identity from the gospel, from Jesus, he was willing to labor and toil night and day for this church to proclaim the gospel to them. And then his conduct was Christ-like, He says, verse 10, you are witnesses and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. He maintained a Christ-like perspective as he lived out this reality. And then verse 11, he uses another illustration, not the illustration of a nurturing mother as he had earlier, but now he uses the illustration, he was like a father with his children. Because there was times when he wasn't gentle, there were times when he had to exhort each of them and encourage them and charge them to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom in glory to remind them of these things. All of these actions, which are practical virtues of the Christian life that we all need to live, all of these actions flow out of his identity with Jesus. Paul didn't just gut it out. Paul saw his obedience and his life in light of his identity with Christ, in light of his story with Christ. That is what he's asking of us. He's asking of us to live in a similar manner. This is the importance of reflecting and identifying your life with Jesus. And I said it at the beginning of the sermon, and I'll point it out again. It becomes very clearly stated in verse uh, 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. And then now, 
Watch the connection here. Okay, so now he's talking about suffering specifically, and he's talking about imitating each other in this trial. So when that struggle happens, how do you interpret it? And Paul's telling this church, and he's telling us, you become imitators of other Christians, of of other churches, when you suffer similar things. When in your struggle, you identify with Jesus. And he says, in their particular case, they are being mistreated by uh, Jews. And Paul identifies in verse 15 that that's what happened to Jesus and the prophets and to Paul. Killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. And so Paul is saying that suffering that you're going through is a necessary component of your life in Christ. The way Jesus said it was, you will be called to pick up your cross and follow him. You will be called to imitate him in that pattern. And that pattern of life in Christ is always consistently this way. Suffering eventually leads to glory. You suffer and you pick up your cross And the goal eventually is to lead to a new life, a new awareness, a new service, the kind of service where you give yourself to other people. That's what Paul did in his ministry. And that is what Paul is calling us to do. After seeing aspects of this passage, I want to encourage you as we close If you think about your story, it can be the story of your life, how you frame it, how you tell it. What would be different as you reflect on your union with Christ? Do you have a suffering, a trial, a struggle in the course of your life that causes you to take a deep breath? How do you view that in light of Jesus? Whatever that may be. And I think as you, as we, if we were to look further in Thessalonians, in the whole New Testament, that this notion of struggle and suffering is not, just, is not just focused on persecution. The suffering that Paul encompasses in his letters, the suffering that he envisions, encompasses every aspect of our life. If it's our faith and we struggle with suffering because of our faith, that's one aspect of it. If it's our health, this side of the garden, this side of the fall, that's another aspect of the sinful struggle in this world. And that may not just be bodily health, but mental health, a host of things that we struggle with should all be seen in light of your union with Christ. What is the area where Jesus is conforming you to his image? And are you going to pick up your cross and follow him? And as Ferguson said, view your struggle in light of the gospel and not the other way around. My prayer is that you would embrace that as part of the mystery of the Christian faith. The way Paul calls it, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, as we have looked at Paul's words here in chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians and sought to understand the story behind his words, the way he lives out his life, we, we've tried to see the mystery of our union with Christ, the glory that we have in him. And sometimes, Father, our eyes are blinded to this truth. We look at other people and we look at ourselves in light of our struggles and our pain. And so we would ask you to send your spirit to open our eyes so that we see our struggles and our pain in light of the gospel, in light of Christ, in light of the cross and the suffering and glory the suffering that Christ went through and the glory that was revealed in him as he endured the cross and despised the shame. We would pray that that would be our call and our life this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.